Hey, South Bend City Church, Mariah here, the Director of Art and Worship. We're so thankful that you chose to listen in today, and to each and every one of you listening, we're so thankful that you're a part of our community here. Listen, it's been quite a week, probably personally, but also in the world around us, and in a week where many of us have been weeping over the violence committed against the vulnerable in a school in Nashville. We also find ourselves turning to the Palm Sunday story of Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. Now, this story includes an implicit confrontation between two very different visions of how to hold the world together, and it brings challenges for all of us. It was a deeply meaningful gathering all the way around, and the liturgy will be available on Thursday. But we're so thankful that you chose to listen in to the teaching today. Before we get there, though, I wanted to give a couple reminders and updates in the life of our community. It's Holy Week, and we've got a couple different gatherings going on this week. On Friday, Good Friday, we'll be having an in-person Good Friday gathering at noon at Studebaker 112. We love your kiddos and would love for them to join us in our gathering, but there will be no child care or kid ministry available. If you're a long-distance community member or if you're local and can't make it, we're working hard behind the scenes to make sure that there's a version of the Good Friday gathering available on Friday. And then if you want to join us in person for Easter, you can do so at our normal gathering times, 9 and 11. We would love to see you there. And one quick note on something Jason will mention at the end of his teaching today. May 7th, we're going to be having our baptism gatherings. If you're interested in being baptized, you can go to the show notes below and click on that link. Or if you have more questions and want to talk to our care pastor, Zach, about what it means to be baptized, you can check out that link as well. As always, if you consider yourself to be part of the South Bend City Church community and want to give financially, you can do so by heading to southbendcitychurch.com give. It's because of your generosity that we're able to do all of the things that we do. Before we jump into today's teaching, I just wanted to let you know that at the end, we will be joining in the practice of Eucharist together. So if you want to join us when we get there, make sure to have some form of bread or cracker and some form of juice or wine. And as Jason says, this is the body of Christ broken for you and the blood of Christ shed for you. Would you know that he's saying that over you as well? All right. Well, thank you once again for joining us. Let's jump in with the rest of our community now. Last November, uh, I was in Jerusalem with members of our church. We were there on a delegation to, uh, to learn a lot of things, including what the land can educate us about when it comes to Scripture and the life of Jesus. We were also there to learn about what's happening between Israelis and Palestinians there and some of the violence and injustice, but also some of the creativity and peacemaking that's happening there. And I've done this trip a number of times now, and there's a few places along the way that always get me the most. And one of them is a church in Jerusalem where if you're in the church, you look out the window and you see this view. Let me put it on the screen there. So this picture's taken inside this church. And if you see that golden dome through the window there, that's not Notre Dame, believe it or not. <laughs> uh, that's the shrine that's built on the dome. Of, well, the dome itself is called the Dome of the Rock. It's an Islamic holy site there on the Temple Mount. This church is built on the Mount of Olives, which is sort of elevated and looks across and down on the holy city of Jerusalem. And uh, the reason this church especially moves me is because of the, the moment that it commemorates in the life of Jesus. The church is called uh, the Church of Dominus Flavit, which there's at least two people in the room that I know know Latin. I'm always embarrassed to talk Latin in front of them because I don't know if I pronounced it right, but uh, it means the Lord wept. And it marks me every time I'm there. 
I think it marks me because of the experiences we have there in Jerusalem and other places in the land and the stories that we hear. We do a lot of weeping while we're there. I think it also marks me because it's the weeping Jesus that I've often found to be the one I, I most quickly identify with. Um, there's like different shades in the expression of Jesus in the Gospels. You get mysterious Jesus sometimes, kind of enigmatic Jesus who says inscrutable things that are hard to understand. And you get angry Jesus sometimes. You get rebuking Jesus. You get storytelling Jesus. You get healing Jesus, doing spectacular things. And then occasionally you get weeping Jesus. And I haven't always known what to do with mysterious Jesus or rebuking Jesus or miracle acting Jesus, but I think I've often felt closest to weeping Jesus just because it feels so human to me. And it feels like an access point in his life that I can connect to. And this church, looking over Jerusalem, is called Dominus Flavit because it marks a moment in Jesus' life uh, where he wept. And I want to tell you uh, where that comes from in the scriptures. This is from the book of Luke where the story is told here. Next slide. As Jesus approached Jerusalem and saw the city, that's Jerusalem, he wept over it. And he said, if even you had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. So this is Jesus uh, entering Jerusalem, pausing there on that hill just outside Jerusalem, looking upon the city and weeping over it. And I've been to that site many times and I've thought often about how meaningful it is to me that Jesus weeps over that city and he weeps with us. But then this week I was having a conversation with a friend that turned my attention to something I'd never thought about before in that passage. So I was talking to uh, Daniel Benora, who's a member of our church here. And I love talking to Daniel about scripture and faith for a lot of reasons. One is he's like a bona fide theologian. He's doing his PhD over at Notre Dame right now in theology. So he always has a lot of uh, wisdom and information to share with me. But also Daniel's actually Palestinian. So he's from that land. And he has a very particular lens through which he views the stories of scripture and American Christian faith and I really need that in my life because I'm kind of located where I'm located and I see the things that I see, but he's seen other things and he helps me see other things. And so he and I were talking this week and he pointed out this very passage to me. And he said what he finds interesting in it is that as he weeps over these people, he says, you did not recognize the time of God being with you, God's visitation with you, God, God's presence with you. And that's surprising because of what happens right before this in the scripture. So I dropped you into the middle of Luke chapter 19 there. I'm going to back up just like one paragraph. This is what happens immediately before Jesus weeps and says, you didn't recognize the fact that God was with you. Let me show you what happens right before this. Jesus went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And as he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you. And as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. And those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? And they replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. And when he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king 
who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he said, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. This happened immediately before Jesus weeps over the city and says, you didn't realize that God was here. But they just said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna is a phrase that means God save us. This is like big messianic expectation language that apparently a lot of these people, like these disciples at least, this big crowd that throws this parade seems to quite clearly have recognized that God was with them. Or did they? That's the question. How is it that they go from a parade saying, this, this man comes in the name of God for us, and the next minute Jesus is weeping over the city saying, you did not recognize the fact that God has been here with you? How, how does that happen? Well, I have a theory, and it's not just my theory, because if it's just my theory, we should move on. But it's a theory that I'm resonant with that comes from some scholarship on this. And there's some background on this moment that's really important. There's something that's not in the text, but that the original audience of this text and the people who experienced the story would have been very well aware of. Let me tell you what's going on in Jerusalem at this time that creates sort of a, a backdrop for the, for the meaning of this moment. So this is around the time of Passover. In Jerusalem, uh, estimates put the city population at something like 40,000 during this time. But during, during Passover, which is one of the highest holy days for the Jewish people, the, the, the population ranks swell from 40,000 to maybe more like 250,000. So there's all this sort of in-gathering of Jewish people from all over the ancient world who are there for this high holy day. And Passover isn't just any high holy day. Passover is a day where they remember a time in their history where their people were oppressed and they were liberated from their enslavement. Now, the fact is these people in the first century, they're under their own sort of oppression. The Roman Empire has a boot on their neck. They're not free. So you can imagine if you're the Romans, and you know that every year around this time, there's this massive gathering in of all of these people into Jerusalem who are remembering a day in their past where God helped them throw off a yoke of slavery and walk into their freedom. You might be concerned about the crowd dynamics and the potential for revolt that could get stirred up in this big high holy day. In fact, there are a lot of historical moments where Passover was a time where Jewish leaders tried to instigate some kind of revolt against Roman rule over their people. So if you're Rome, what do you do? You send in the big guns. Uh, there's a parade that happens every year at this time, and I'm not talking about Jesus' Palm Sunday entrance, which, by the way, if it wasn't clear, that was Palm Sunday we just read. I know Luke doesn't mention the palms. Trust me, they were there at the palms. Like, that's, that's Palm Sunday. That's the Palm Sunday story. There's another parade that happens every year right around Palm Sunday, and it's Pilate's entrance into Jerusalem. See, Pilate decides, this is the Roman governor who's in charge of keeping things calm in this part of the world. Pilate decides that he's going to bring a show of force, a show of power to remind the people that they've got their boot, the Romans have their boot on, the, on their neck, and you're not going to get it off of you, Right? So Pilate is known to literally bring a parade of war horses and chariots. These are not to be crass quite seriously, something like the ancient equivalent of fighter jets and tanks. These are some of the most powerful weapons of military domination that exist at that time. And Pilate decides that he's going to ride into town on these things. So I've been thinking about that background note. I've been thinking about Jesus entering this, this strange kind of farcical entrance. It's almost satirical. It's almost, it's almost comedic. It's a bizarre act of performance art that he enters the town on a donkey at the same time that they're used to seeing this big show of force. And I've been thinking about people who one moment are saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, who just a few days later, some might, of those same people might be saying, crucify him. And I've been wondering about Jesus who says 
to people who have just celebrated the fact that he comes in the name of the Lord, that he says to them, I weep over you because you, you don't even recognize that God is here. You miss the fact that God is here. I've been wondering how that happens. And I've wondered if even while the people weren't happy with the way that Rome was oppressing them, I've wondered if it's possible that Rome had still shaped their imaginations. I've wondered if perhaps they didn't like it when Pilate showed up on his war horse, but if they thought the alternative was that God would show up on a war horse too. I've been wondering if they thought that their liberation ought to look quite like the Roman vision of power. It's just that that same war horse parade, those same chariots show up for you, not against you, but it's still the same vision of domination or power. I've wondered if that's what they hoped for, if that's what they wanted. And I wondered if one of the reasons, if one of the many complicated reasons that Jesus ends up on a cross is that the very people who hoped that he would liberate them then became disillusioned with him when he refused to bring the same kind of weapons of power and war to vindicate their cause. I keep thinking about Pilate and Jesus and the disillusionment of people who are hoping for vindication and the strange way that he enters. And I keep thinking about how there are, there are two ways to enter every city, not just Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. There's the um, militarized, uh, defended, sort of Roman vision of power as a way of entering a city or entering a conflict or entering a relationship or entering a situation or entering a politic. There's that way of entering these things where you protect yourself and you defend yourself and you bring all the weapons alongside you. And then there's this strange, undefended way in which Jesus enters the same city. I've been thinking about how so many of us want to live for God's agenda in the world, but I think we still want to use Rome's tools. And I mean that in our interpersonal relationships, and I mean that scaled up all the way to the largest conflicts that we are wrestling with as a society today. Now, if you're not quite convinced that what Jesus is doing is an intentional act of contrast and confrontation with Pilate's power, if you're not convinced yet, let me give you one more background note. When we read about Jesus bringing a young donkey, this colt, into this strange kind of parade, it seems very clear that he is self-consciously enacting a text that comes from the book of Zechariah. So this is earlier in the scriptures. This is a text that Jesus and all of these other people would have known. Let me show you what Zechariah says. It'll be pretty clear to you that he's channeling Zechariah here. This is Zechariah chapter 9, where the prophet's saying, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Zion, by the way, is like the name of the hill upon which the city of Jerusalem is built. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly, and riding on a donkey, on a colt. The full of a donkey. Okay, so it's pretty clear, right? We have a connection between what Jesus is doing and what Zechariah is saying. But then watch what Zechariah says next. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. I will take away the chariots and the war horses and the battle bow. I will proclaim peace or he will proclaim peace to the nations. This is very clear. If you, if you know that Pilate shows up every year with a war horse and you see Jesus channeling Zechariah, this is very clearly a confrontation that Jesus is setting up. I think he knows what he's doing. Another way of like working this all out for us is I think it's important to say it's not enough to want what God wants. God wants peace. We have to pursue the agenda in the same way that God does. Because I think so many of us, whether we're trying to set things right in our personal world or in our neighborhoods or in our 
church or our community or our world at large, whether it's in the politics or in the personal or everything in between, I think one thing that can happen is you begin to grow in conviction of what it is that God wants for the world. And that's good. We ought to be convicted about the kind of world that God wants. But then when we go to pursue that world, we pick up the same means. We play the same power games that Rome has always been playing. And we try to figure out how we can show up invincible, guarded, defended, lifted high up on a war horse, thinking that that's how we're going to make the world that God wants. When Jesus seems to be saying, no, means and ends have to be connected. It's the strange, vulnerable, undefended way of Jesus who rides this small donkey into the city that ends up being the way that we join God in creating the world that God wants. Now, I'm going to say more about the surprises in that way, the risks in that way. Uh, But first, I just have to observe the week that we've lived through. Uh, On Monday, my experience of the shooting in Nashville was uh, texts from, I have a lot of really dear friends in Nashville, and it was texts from friends telling me about it. It was me running to my computer to try to figure out where it was happening, because there's a lot of little people in my life, kids who are very special to me who are there, and friends who were parents. And then when I saw the location of the school, my heart sank. Uh, because I have a little godson named Alexander who, whose father died very tragically a few years ago uh, who attends a small private Christian school in that neighborhood. And I didn't know exactly where his school was, but I knew the neighborhood. And so when I looked at the map, my heart sank. Now, um, thank God for Alexander's sake. He actually was at a school just a block away. Um, but then, of course, you know, a lot of Nashville friends were checking in and... Um, I heard from them, some who are close to the parents who lost kids in that shooting, the ways that they were processing their grief. And of course, if we're going to hear Jesus who weeps over a city and says, you do not know the things that make for peace, and if we're going to sit with a Jesus who weeps over a world who doesn't know the things that make for peace, it would be absurd to sit here this Sunday morning and talk about all that, and like not name the elephant of the room of the week that we've just walked through, right? Now, this isn't a sermon about guns, um, but it would be absurd not to mention what we have lived through and what we keep living through over and over and over again. Um, I think some are too quick to try to peg me or South and City Church as like ideologically progressive when I think that's not really the case. Um, for the record, I own a firearm. It's not for self-defense. I own it because of its connection to some really cherished memories of my grandfather and my father and my uncle. And um, I've sat in the back of a pickup truck on a ranch in Montana firing AR-15s at, at prairie dogs because the ranchers there have an infestation problem and their cattle herds keep breaking their legs in the holes that are created by the prairie dogs. And I've fired an AR-15 and thought, wow, that is a very powerful weapon. So I'm not like... A, I don't know what you think I am. I don't think I am what you think I am. I'm not like pure anti-gun. But it strikes me that, um, as far as I understand it, uh, we have like really fairly clear, statistically supported, data-driven, historically tested ways of addressing some of this. Some basic public policies, whether it's you know, banning assault weapons or red flag laws that make it possible for us 
to remove a weapon from somebody who's demonstrably unsafe. Like we have some policies that have been tested, we have data, we have statistics, and what's crazy is as far as I understand it, a lot of what I'm talking about is widely supported by law enforcement community, gun owners, and progressives. But we still like can't find our way to make any of this happen. And so I think a lot of us are a little riled up right now to do something about this. And I would say good. There's nothing passive about Jesus. There's nothing about Jesus who sticks his head in the sand when he sees the ways that we are hurting one another in the world, right? And then I would also say, if you are feeling compelled to act, to mobilize, to move on this, just don't lose sight of the fact that it's not enough to want the world that God wants. We've got to pursue that world the way that God pursues that world. And there in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, Jesus could have mounted a war horse, but he didn't. He could have decided to enter the city defended, trying to make himself invincible, but he didn't. He entered it with humility and vulnerability. That's actually the pattern. That's actually the path. And however it is that we move in the world to try to address things that are broken in the world, I hope we will not just hold on to the world that God wants, but we will try to walk the path that God walks to get there. I know when we get angry, and by the way, anger can be righteous, but I know that when we get angry, it can channel a certain kind of energy in the world, right? We can look for the war horses that we could mount to make a point. And I'm not saying it's wrong to express anger either. I think there's probably some righteous anger that needs to be channeled right now. But I am saying that um, Jesus is not just trying to tell us what kind of world God wants. He's trying to give us wisdom, deep wisdom, about how we join God in getting there. There's a, another text that's become sacred for me. It's not in scripture, but I keep thinking about it this week. And it reminds me of a deep thing that I think Jesus knows about what it is that drives us to our war horses and what it is that makes us want to enter every city like Pilate rather than follow Jesus' example. It's a, it's a simple word that gets named in this passage from a book that I read something like 30 years ago. I was in middle school and this passage it marked me so deeply. It's been with me ever since. It comes from a novel. The novel's called Cry the Beloved Country, a novel written in and about South Africa, about um, the racism and injustice that has been present in that country's history for so long. And in this novel, the plot line gets interrupted with a meditation where the, the author sort of takes a step back from the details of the plot and speaks more reflectively about what's happening in the story that he is telling. And these words have like shaken my soul for 30 years and they've been with me all week. This is what he says. Cry, the beloved country, for the unborn child that is the inheritor of our fear. Let him not love the earth too deeply. Let him not laugh too gladly when the water runs through his fingers, nor stand too silent when the setting sun makes red the veld with fire. Let him not be too moved when the birds of his land are singing, nor give too much of his heart to a mountain or a valley, for fear will rob him of all if he gives too much. And I've been crying for the children who are the inheritors of our fear this week, and I think a lot of you have too. And I think it's actually fear that drives us to our war horses. Fear becomes this, this dirty fuel that drives us, that, that powers us through the world, but it's not good fuel. It powers us 
towards stances and actions that are breaking the world. Fear is a pathology that makes us sick and causes us to harm one another. There's a reason scripture says over and over and over and over again, do not fear, do not fear. That's not just like good Sunday school faith. That's a deep insight about the thing that we allow to take harbor in our hearts that makes us sick and makes our world sick, that has to be chased out. And I keep thinking about what it is that would empower Jesus, like to know that he is walking into this bees hive of contested interests and political debates in Jerusalem, to know that his vulnerable way of being in the world is going to end him. I mean, through the Gospels, he seems to know that his way of being in the world, who he is and what he's doing, is going to lead to a crucifixion for him. But as he tells his friends, yeah, this way that I have appeared in the world, this way that God is living God's life in the world is going to lead to a crucifixion. As he tells his disciples about that, he also tells them there's going to be something after that. And I'm not here to tell you that walking like Jesus, walking with vulnerability, walking undefended, walking vulnerable, walking walking open-hearted in a world with all of these contested interests, I'm not telling you it's going to go great for you. I'm not saying it's going to be easy. Yeah, when you walk through the world vulnerable, open-hearted, undefended, when you get off the war horse that keeps you safe or that you think keeps you safe, and you walk this humble way of Jesus, it might lead to an end for you. Somebody might take advantage of that in you. Somebody might use it against you. But Jesus knows there's something after they end you. Jesus knows that evil can unleash everything it has, that fear can do everything it can do. Jesus knows you can bring the war horses and the chariots and they can do all their damage and he knows there's something after all of that. What I'm saying is I think the reason Jesus doesn't need a war horse is because you don't need a war horse when you believe in a resurrection. You don't need to live this defended, guarded life You don't need to enter these conflicts on war horses when you believe there's something after the end of you, when you believe there's a resurrection. I see Jesus walking down that hillside and then riding that colt, knowing the foolishness of it, the strangeness of it, knowing he runs the risk that some will be disillusioned, that maybe some of the people who are saying that day, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord will later that week say crucify him. And somehow he does it. And I think it's because there is something driving him that isn't fear. I think there's something deeper flowing through him. And it's the strange joy. And there's another word for that I'll show you in a minute. It's the strange joy of knowing there's something that comes after death. That there's a resurrection. That the powers that seem most serious and dominating, I think he sees them for the emperor with no clothes. I think he sees them for what they are, that they rage for a moment, but that they're actually powerless against the life of the kingdom of God. And so we've heard Jesus weeping, and we've talked about fear. But I think there's another thing fueling him. And the best description I've ever seen of this comes from an author named G.K. Chesterton who wrote a book called Orthodoxy. It's about his own faith and his understanding of Jesus. It's a a little volume. He wrote it um, quite a while ago now. And like I'll never, this book too, I remember reading it. I remember sitting in my Jeep in front of 
of my dorm on a college campus. I couldn't put the book down, and I turned to the last page and I read this paragraph. These are the last words of his book about faith and about Jesus. And Chesterton says this. The tremendous figure which fills the Gospels towers in this respect. He hasn't told you what the respect is yet, but it towers in this respect. As in every other, above all the thinkers who ever thought themselves tall. His pathos was natural, almost casual. The Stoics, ancient and modern, were proud of concealing their tears. But he never concealed his tears. He showed them plainly on his open face at any daily sight, such as the far sight of his native city. That's, uh, that's him weeping over Jerusalem. Yet he concealed something. Solemn supermen and imperial diplomatists are proud of restraining their anger, but Jesus, he never restrained his anger. He flung furniture down the front steps of the temple and asked men how they expected to escape the damnation of hell. Yet he restrained something. I say it with reverence. There was in that shattering personality a thread that must be called shyness. There was something that he hid from all men when he went up a mountain to pray. There was something that he covered constantly by abrupt silence or impetuous isolation. There was some one thing that was too great for God to show us when he walked upon our earth. And I have sometimes fancied that it was his mirth. But it was the strange joy of him knowing that there's something that happens after you die. That the war horses can come and the chariots can show up and all the powers that be can rage. And you can make yourself undefended, unguarded, and vulnerable in that world. And for a moment, they might think that they have you. But there's something that happens after that. I think Jesus sees the war horses for the joke that they are. He's not naive. He knows they will end him. He just knows there's something after that end, right? And this Palm Sunday, as we enter Holy Week, and we have wept for the world as it is, and some of us are stirred up to do something about it, to act on it. To bring our love and our voice to a world that is breaking, I would say, yeah, good. We are being given glimpses of the world that God wants, and we are here to build that world with him and with one another. Yes, good. But just don't you dare forget, we build it the way that he builds it. Jesus shows up humble, vulnerable, and unguarded and believes in spite of all the evidence to the contrary that that's what real power looks like, that that's what it looks like when God arrives. And we too might be like those crowds who didn't recognize the time of God's visitation because we think that when God shows up, he ought to show up on a war horse, but he doesn't. He shows up on a donkey and he walks humbly. And then one more note I'll make about this before we come to the table, which is if that's how Jesus approaches Jerusalem, humble, unguarded, vulnerable, don't you know that's also how Jesus approaches you? I think too many of us have also gotten an image of God who comes at our own lives on a war horse. You know, standing far above us, looking down on us, judging us, threatening us. But if there's any point to being Christian, it's to say that what Jesus does is what God does. And the way that Jesus shows up is the way that God shows up. And we see here God approaching the city that God loves, brokenhearted and vulnerable. And you better believe that's how God comes to you.
I know some of you are contemplating baptism, which is coming up on May 7th. Uh, if you want to learn more, by the way, just go to our website. There's an obvious link there, and you can see a little bit more about what baptism means for us as a church. And you can let us know if you're interested and want to talk more. But as you contemplate that act of being in the water and saying yes to Jesus, I want to say again, he, he comes to you the way that Jesus comes to Jerusalem. Weeping for the broken places in us, loving us, humble, undefended, even vulnerable. That, that's the Jesus who meets us and calls us. I'm going to ask those who are serving uh, the Eucharist for us today to come forward. And as they join me on the stage, I want to remind you that in this same Holy Week, at a meal that many scholars think was probably the very Passover that I've mentioned already, Jesus was sharing that meal with friends. And as he shared that meal with friends, he took a loaf of bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat. And later that night, he took a cup and he said, this is the cup of a new covenant forged in my blood. The promise of enduring faithfulness and unending love, inexhaustible mercy and grace. That these things flow endlessly in God for you and for me and for the world. And today I'll also remind you that sometimes the image of taking a cup is to say, like, will you partake in the same things that Jesus has partaken in? Will you walk the same road that Jesus has walked? And so for us today, even as we come to the table to receive the love of God, we also are finding ways in our own hearts to say, yes, we will walk the way that he walks. We will partake of the cup that he partakes of, knowing that there are things that happen to us even after they end us that we too will be raised up. And so loving God, I pray that these elements would be for us today, the body and blood of Jesus given for us and for the world. I pray we would find ourselves there with Jesus as he weeps, knowing the great compassion that he feels toward us and toward the world. I pray that we would be there with Jesus as he walks I pray that we would be there with Jesus as he rides into the city on a donkey, strangely entering in a way that makes no sense. I pray that we would discover the surprising power of humility and vulnerability, that we would know you, the God who meets us not on war horses, but in giving yourself away. I pray that you would build in us and sustain in us a deep knowing about the way things really are. That love is actually more powerful than evil and violence. I pray that we would be vessels of that love in the world and that we would meet that love in this meal. I pray these things through Christ. We all said, Amen. The body of Christ broken for you and the blood of Christ shed for you.
So I hope we'll see you later this week. Uh, on Good Friday, we'll be here at noon for a brief time to hear the story of Jesus' um, his death on our behalf and for the world and to come to the table for the Eucharist. And then we'll be here on Easter to celebrate together because there are things that happen after the end of things. And it seems to have been a source of joy for Jesus and it'll be a source of joy for us. 
Uh, if you're doing the new to SBCC table, if you're already registered, uh, we'll get started pretty quickly right after the gathering right upstairs. There's a lift in the Northwest lobby if stairs are a challenge. And now a benediction. May you know the Jesus who weeps with you, that God is not far removed from the aching, groaning feelings that we have when the world breaks. May you know the God who shows us how to walk in a world that breaks. May we trust that we can join him in this humble and vulnerable way of being, knowing that we too will be raised up. And may grace and peace be with you. Amen. Love you all. See you this week.